Hi, I'm Will. And I'm Luke. And this is Will Will and Luke Luke Discuss. A vodcast. And podcast. Where we discuss content related to psychology, personal growth, self-development, and well-being. This This episode, we're we're discussing Reinventing Your Life by Jeffrey Young and Janet Kosko. And um, yours is in better neck than mine, mate. <laughs> is it? Uh, is yours hardback or <laughs> uh, just a bit scruffy at the edges? You know. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah. So, um, anyway, yeah, I, I I have to ignore the title of this book to be able to kind of enjoy it. <laughs> so it's it's simply it's simply too cheesy, but the contents was absolutely brilliant. It really introduced me to schema focused, you know, CBT and um that was really my first introduction to that other than some basic um knowledge about it that came through when i was studying um my cert for in mental health over here so we do a bit on schema there oh schemas okay yeah yeah schemas yeah so i I was introduced to the concept of schemas maybe four or five years ago but then getting into the book um taught me a lot more yeah so i reckon a good place to start would be based on the fact this book is centred on schema-focused CBT, could you give a bit of an introduction about what that is and then I'll maybe encourage some dialogue around a few concepts in the book. So what is schema-focused CBT? So before I do that, you mentioned the title. We've got to talk about the cover. Like, that is disgusting. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, like purple and yellow are opposite on the color scale like they don't go it's like red and yeah there's three colors that just shouldn't be on there well i guess, <laughs> I guess technically mate purple and yellow are complementary colors aren't they but uh no they're opposite yeah that makes them complementary we're gonna start bickering before we even get into it <laughs> i thought we need to restart uh, we can both agree that that the wisdom of judging a book by its cover, like this really pushes you to the edge of that because it's this, yeah, like you say, the title's horrible. It's covered in writing. Like every square inch of the page has writing on it. And yeah. there's this block horrible color. So um, as, you yeah. said about, as you said about the title, I, I, I really encourage people to push through their prejudices and allow themselves to open yeah. the book. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ignore got, what um, they were doing in the early 90s because this is absurd. <laughs> Do you remember me telling you when I was um I was sitting at a pool on holiday and it was kind of a it was more it's more of a hostel sort of vibe and yeah. uh, I was sat there reading this book and yeah. this guy who was a bit a bit of a lad, bit of a London lad, was just like, Oh mate, how how you going? Like, what are you reading over there? Like and I was just like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> just reading this book called Reinventing Your Life, mate. And he's like and what he says like what the hell do you want to do that for Rolf (laughs) (laughs) wise word there was no going back from that I'm like oh yeah I'm just a psychology student I'm reading it for studying I I couldn't own it I I could not own reading that book in front of someone (laughs) well maybe as we dig into it we can uh, unpack what life trap was triggered for you in that moment yeah that's a that's a good one anyway let's uh, (laughs) let's get going give us a bit of an idea about um, schema focused therapy yeah, so uh, let's see a bit of background. So you've got CBT developed, in, well, cognitive therapy developed by Aaron Beck in like the 60s. And um, that's all about 
how your the way you interpret situations determines how you feel and if you're interpreting situations in ways that are not in line with reality and are detrimental then you're going to end up feeling crap for reasons you don't really have to to basically sum it up um, yeah. um aaron beck actually does the forward to this um so jeffrey young studied with him in like the 60s and 70s and then he developed schema therapy in the mid 80s and he basically developed it because he found that cbt didn't work for a certain subgroup of people <clears throat> of clients of his which tended to be around people who uh what he calls have like character logical or like personality disorders so yeah. things that are really like long-standing and have se seemingly always felt this way and go way back into childhood he found cbt wasn't too helpful for and it was more helpful for things that were more like present and immediate and so rather than just like challenging people's thoughts in the present moment like uh, this concept of schemas comes from psychology. So it's like a schema is a, an internal map, an internal representation of some aspect of the world, which if we've got that ingrained into us, then as new situations um, are constantly um, hitting us, we're being exposed to novelty all the time. But if we've got all these maps stored in our mind, then we can make sense of the world, even though we're being exposed to new stuff. So, for example, like, you go to a new city in England you've never been to, it's not completely alien to you, even though you've never been there, because you know how roads work, you know how the bus system works, you know how cafes and shops work. Like, you've already got a map for how all this stuff works. So that's what a schema is. But then there are schemas specific to you and who you are. So, like, I've got schemas for Luke, which, like, different ones that might be triggered by different people in different situations. And if some of these um, like self-schemas are detrimental to me, then, um, then I'm going to suffer quite a lot because they're going to be triggered quite a lot because I can't go anywhere where I'm not taking myself. So they, yeah. They, yeah. they call these early maladaptive schemas. So ones that are developed in early childhood, which because you, you build a, uh, a map of yourself ar around your needs going unmet, and then um, they develop into like, you know, character logical, um, I guess like personality traits really, but ones that sort mm. of hold you back in many ways. And that's what this book's about. It's about trying to address 11 specific self schemas or what they call life traps. Life traps. So just to be clear, I guess, from the get go, yeah. what we'll be referring to as life traps are schemas. Uh, yeah. Um, or is that um, is a life trap more specifically describing self-defeating behaviour patterns, the more negative aspects of schemas? Or Yeah, so they're specifically early maladaptive schemas. So schemas that are about you, that they developed early in life, and that they're not serving you in a particular way. So, okay. so they're basically, if you, like in psychology, the concept of schemas is quite broad. So, but when we, when, I mentioned, when we talk about schemas or life traps throughout this, we'll be specifically referring to the small subset of like internal maps that are about ourselves, but they don't serve us well and they developed early in our childhood. Okay, great.
I might um I might just add to that and quickly just read the paragraph the book has on what a life trap is. Yeah, go for just it. Just to kind of send it home. Yeah, so a life trap is a pattern that starts in childhood and reverberates throughout life. It began with something that was done to us by our families or by other children. We were abandoned, criticized, overprotected, abused, excluded, or deprived. We were damaged in some way. Eventually, the life trap becomes part of us, long after we leave the home we grew up in. We continue to create situations in which we are mistreated, ignored, put down, or controlled, and in which we fail to reach our most desired goals. Life traps determine how we think, feel, and act, and relate to others. They trigger strong feelings such as anger, sadness, and anxiety, even when we appear to have everything. Okay, so that was, um, yeah, I feel like we've probably had a good good go at covering what, what that means. I think um, something I found interesting about um, a schema is just to add to the introduction, um, something says in the book as well, is to give up our schema would be to surrender the security of knowing who we are and what the world is like. Therefore, yeah. we cling to it even when it hurts. Right. These early beliefs provide us with a sense of predictability and certainty. Could you expand on that? A yeah, that's really How important. So this kind of quite protective for us, yeah. Yeah. Um, early in the book, they raise the question of like, why on earth would we perpetuate these things that um, just cause us suffering and cause us to repeat patterns we know are bad for us? Because mm-hmm. um, that sounds very counterintuitive. But yeah, the the idea is that we developed these um, life traps, these schemas in a time where they actually served us in early life. Um, so when a, when a particular need was, need was going unmet, when we were vulnerable and dependent and more helpless, they were actually useful. Mm. And therefore, we, we developed them as kind of a defense to get through that time. And so, like, because they did serve us at some point, our, like, psyche, our mind, our body is very reluctant to let go of that because it's like, no, this, like, from an evolutionary perspective, we're alive. Like, this works. Like, we didn't, yeah. we survived childhood. And, like, I'm not going to let go of this um, map I have of the world because this map I have of the world, like, it's guided me this far. It works. Like, I, I understand mm. how things work. I understand myself. Even if I understand myself as worthless and inferior, at least it's a coherent narrative of myself and the world. And if I lose that, I've got, like, I'm, I'm just in chaos. I've got no um, way to guide myself or no way to make sense of what's happening around me. So I, I'd, Is rather, there, um... I'd rather have security in um, a world that makes sense, even if it leads to suffering. Even if it leads to... Okay. And is there anything to do with... Um, that is quite, quite early on in the book around Freud's idea of um, the irony of repetition like yeah. we have repetition compulsion so we're repeated to carry out acts that we know could cause us suffering but because they're familiar we continue to to act them out is that does that tie into what you were saying yeah yeah that's what they re- that's what they re- refer to in the early in the book that like mm. this um repetition compulsion as as freud put it has been like talked about for um like since the dawn of psychotherapy, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, I wonder whether we have a quick chat about some of the key ways in which life traps are developed and then maybe go on to explain each of the 
11 live traps briefly yeah should we go through like a brief description kind of of, of the book from start to finish so like it opens with describing what live traps are which we've done yeah it kind of then it then um oh, i should also say actually that in schema therapy there are like 18 schemas that um they base the therapy around and in this book they've chosen to just focus on 11 of those okay. I, presumably it's just to make the book shorter and to only focus on the ones that are most common for people um yeah so then so then it it briefly describes the 11 life traps or schemas and then it asks you to fill out like a questionnaire i don't, I don't know if you went through that i did do that actually yeah and it helps you identify which ones are strongest in yeah. in your life and different different scales doesn't it so then eventually you would go through each one each kind of chapter in the book about it and i suppose you would you would tend to probably pay more attention to the ones that stood out to you but yeah i managed to get some i, I got some in you know i found the ones that i didn't relate to me still interesting oh, yeah. still things you can pick up in each one um but again it similar to a lot of books you read in this sort of area i find what stands out to you is often just so clear like as you're reading it it just stands out and yeah the chapters are really good at explaining and giving quite practical ideas about where these life traps would have come from specific yeah. examples and they ask you to identify what those are yeah too yeah so um yeah so they they explain each of the 11 life traps yeah and then I guess they go a bit late. Yeah, even before they go into those, they do kind of talk about what we can typically do to address them, yeah. how to recognise life traps, how life traps change, obstacles to change, yeah. and um, something we can get onto as well. They talk about the common coping styles we adopt to live with these life traps, um, yeah. surrender, escape, counterattack. Yeah. So, so they do, these are how we cope with them, not how we deal with them, though, right? That it's like how we cope, how, yeah. How we um, sort of keep them going, but remain functional. Um, so that's kind of a, that's a bit different to how we change them, right? It's like yeah, yeah. How we how exactly. we live with them rather than how we um, address them. <clears throat> so maybe that'd be something good to cover before we cover how they change. I suppose. Um, so overall, would you say the book? if we kind of were to split it into three sections was yeah. what schemas and life traps are. Yeah. And then the second bit would be exploring each one in, in detail, where they come from, how it affects our life. And then yeah. it finishes off how we can change them and common obstacles to change. Yeah. Um, I mean, they actually don't address it in that order, do they? They, they address how to change them before they even go into them in detail um yeah which i which is a little bit yeah, i, I mm. would have i would have written it the way you just offered it but um yeah maybe, maybe <laughs> that's how we should talk about it um yeah well it, so it's like a self-help book but it's written like as you said it was like um you know did you, did you when you were a kid did you ever have those like create your own story books where it's the like, goosebumps ones yeah yeah it's like if you want this yeah. to happen go to page 36 it's a bit like that where it's like these are what life traps are identify them and then it's like the ones that stand out most for you turn to that chapter so it's kind of like it's almost intended mm. for you to adapt the book to you to yourself and your personality 
Hmm. I like that. It, 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 it meant you could just kind of get straight into it. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, you know, by page, by page 40, you know, you're, you're in. Yeah. Yeah. Usually, that's <laughs> <whole> idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. All right. So, um, shall we start with just going through the 11 life traps? Yeah. We're doing all right. Kind of giving a bit of a summary of the book. So I'll get you to explain the first two of the 11. The first two are related to lack of security and safety growing up. And those are the abandonment and the mistrust and abuse. So if you want to start with the abandonment life trap. So um, so these, the book covers 11 of these schemas, but those, um, they're all developed from needs that have gone unmet. And so the schema therapy references six different needs we have. Um, and each to thrive, isn't it? Sorry. You said needs, um, what we need to thrive. Yeah. Like That's psychological need. needs, yeah. not like food <laughs> and stuff. Although yeah. actually that probably would come under basic safety. Um, so yeah, under, so if you imagine we've got these six, six different needs, and depending how they might go unmet depends on which of these life traps we might um, pick up. So we've got the needs of basic safety, connection to others, autonomy, uh, the need for self-esteem, need for self-expression, and the need for realistic limits. So, yeah. so the first one, basic safety, the two life traps or schemas and that are abandonment and mistrust and abuse. Yeah. So abandonment would be this, um, I guess in adulthood, in, in, if you had the schema, it would be this, this fear that whatever situation you got yourself into with anyone, that they were going to leave you or abandon yeah. you. It's pretty simple, really, that you, this, this um, lack of security that people will be there for you. Um, kind of quite similar to the what we discussed last week in terms of the anxious attachment style that like I thought that yeah and the way people moving from one person to another and yeah and that kind of feeling of emptiness when relationships do end as well yeah. not unable to unable to sustain meaningful relationships in their lives yeah and that like you might end up um I guess with, with all of them, but with this one specifically, it could end up being self-fulfilling because you end up, because of your fear that people will abandon you, you end up acting in such a way that's so clingy that they're then more likely to leave. To ban yeah. And so then yeah. the schema, the life trap becomes self-fulfilling because you then build up all these experiences of people actually abandoning you, which only then confirms the belief you had that people are going to abandon you. And does that make it, that would make the life trap harder to let go of because you've been reinforcing this. Yeah. You've got all this evidence. Your whole life. It's true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you know, some of the beliefs underpinning it might be that I'm, um, you know, unlovable. No one will be there for me, that sort of thing. And those things are just going to get confirmed each time someone does actually leave. Um, mm. so that, that, yeah, that it makes it, self-fulfilling they um, speak about um how that affects people in relationships that they're quite often always on the brink of catastrophe uh, that's yeah. what, he's, what they say in the book yeah they're kind of they're always 
on edge the the person's always ready for it to kind of explode and kind of end yeah in a lot of ways which yeah they, they do speak about how each of these life traps affect different areas of your life but I, yeah as as you've been saying it's, it's good just to think about how they affect a person overall so i guess if we yeah. um maybe yeah. go through each one how they affect us now and how they might have developed in childhood yeah sounds good so with abandonment yeah. it's pretty obvious um people abandoned you either parents died maybe there was a divorce um maybe one parent left the other early on and you blamed yourself for it maybe mm-hmm. each time um you know you were at school or something everyone was always late to pick you up or forgot about you it's um mm. what about when you reached out for help or tried to express yourself at a young age and you weren't you weren't mirrored by your primary caregiver i think that probably comes more under the maybe the self-esteem or the connection to others need like this is a really basic like people literally abandoned you i I think that's what they're referring to okay so it it could almost fall that could almost fall into emotional deprivation but yeah so these ones around the basic elements of safety and security yeah so like it's not just like um you know, you, you didn't get the toys you wanted that you asked for, or, or like you, you, you didn't have your emotions necessarily reflected back at you. It's literally like people left you, like you would get home and people wouldn't be there. Like, um, yeah. you yeah. had no sense of routine and structure in your family home. People disappeared, you know, maybe someone was on drugs or kept leaving or maybe you're mm. you had a single parent but they kept getting like strings of partners and maybe you got close to one and they left you got close to another they left mm. maybe okay you yeah kept getting dropped at other people's houses to get looked after i think it's quite that in this in this basic safety one i get the impression it's quite um more obvious and intense um yeah of an yeah. need it's like the real basic need for just a family structure that you can trust mm-hmm. okay so i think that covers abandonment yeah done how it affects us now and where it comes from on to the next one under safety and security is mistrust and abuse so how would that affect us now and where does that come from um it's i think because it's under the same need it's sort of similar the impression i got was that like um so in adulthood yeah you you wouldn't trust people you would be like reading into their motives assuming that they were had um malevolent intentions i guess um that they were kind of out to get you in some way would it put you on edge a bit in day-to-day situations like you're very um attuned to changes and you're watching and waiting for painful situations to arise is that something that would i think this this probably depends on the coping strategy we have for it um yeah which so like i i guess we'll go into it afterwards but briefly the coping strategies you can either like counterattack your schema which means you purposely attempt to do the opposite of it um you surrender to it which means you just sort of in a sort of depressive accept it that that's the way it is or you attempt to avoid it so i guess depending on which one of those you do depends on 
Um, so for example, with this mistrust and abuse one, you might just avoid people altogether because you can't mm. trust them. That would be the avoidance one. Um, yeah. and maybe with the kind of surrender one, that would, that might be the one you were referring to where like, mm. you just don't trust anyone you come across it. You're pretty anxious quite a lot of the time because everyone around you is a potential threat. You're saying vigilant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And where would this life trap develop? Well, how would it develop? Um, again, I think because this is under the basic safety need, it's pretty obvious. Like you were hit, beaten, like literally abused, maybe sexually abused, um, yeah. maybe emotionally abused. Um, Inconsistent parenting as well, just around the mistrust side of things. You yeah. Trust um, what was said and ac actions and words didn't line up from your parents. Yeah, okay. promises were broken. You heard them lie yeah. to either yourself or other people a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, things were said that were going to happen which didn't happen. Um, I think, yeah, just, just a sense of... We, All right. Um, it's like a sense of... Uh, I think it's it's important to to look at when this is happening in adulthood. It's often unjustified. Um, so, like, I might be mistrusting people who are perfectly trustworthy, but it, mm. it's come from a place where it was justified. Like, if I did have consistent people who I couldn't trust, who were lying or breaking promises or abusing me in some way, then like this was a sensible belief system to build at that time. But then we get into adulthood and we still have the belief system, but I've changed, the people around me have changed. Um, so now the map doesn't fit the territory anymore. It, it no longer serves, serves yeah. us and only causes damage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so the, the next couple are to do with the, the need for autonomy and functioning independently. Yeah. The first one is dependence. So what it's got written down here is you depend on others to act as a crutch and need constant support. And as a child, you're made to feel incompetent when you try to assert your independence. So that's a bit of an introduction. Yeah. But what, what ways do you see the dependence life trap affecting us in day-to-day -day life now? Um... The, st the, the stereotype that comes to mind, which probably isn't very PC, but it's like the sort of the woman who maybe goes straight from like familyhood straight into marriage and always has like the parents or husband there and is kind of dependent on them for the, the finances, for um, like the major responsibilities of life. So uh, um, for me, it, it's, yeah, the, the, there's a stereotype, isn't there, of like, you never kind of learn to grow up and do things for yourself because someone might always be doing them for you. And in, in the way that you would avoid acting independently, that would reinforce that life trap because you'd be getting other people to do 
yeah. things for you, therefore leading to you becoming dependent. Yeah, and then it might actually, again, it's self-fulfilling, right? Because if you have never done your taxes until you're like mid-40s, then you are incompetent at doing that task. doesn't mean you can't learn it, but, but then that's, that's just more evidence to yourself that you are dependent and incompetent because mm. you, you don't try to learn the skills um, that more independence would have brought you. And therefore you actually don't have those skills. So, so this is probably another, uh, they all are, but this is another one where it's really, really like easy to become self-fulfilling because you just don't learn the things you would have done if you were in more independent. Hmm. And would this, would this come from parents who were maybe over controlling or didn't allow the child to go out and do their own thing? I they think put a lot of conditions on how they were to behave or they had such strong expectations or they were punished for going outside of those expectations. Yeah. Like all of the above. I think like there's not one, um, there's not necessarily one way in which you might learn that you're dependent. It could be, for example, that on the surface, your, your parents were so, um, seemingly like nice and, mm. um, doing everything for you in such a way that maybe they felt, they didn't have done for them when they were children. And, and that's led you to a feeling of like, I can't do anything for myself. Equally, you might have had parents who, you know, called you names, said you were stupid and incompetent. And therefore that put you off trying anything and that kept you dependent. So you, yeah, go on. Yeah. I was going to say like, especially when you've, you put yourself out there, you've gone to express yourself and act on your own in the world. And then you're called named and put down. Yeah. That would be significant, not less different from just being called names for no reason, but actually when yeah. you stepped out into the world that you were like pushed back down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. We'll, uh, we'll move on and vulnerability. So the key things I've highlighted here is that you do not feel safe in the world and your fears are excessive and unrealistic. How does this affect us now? Or how would this affect someone now who had this life trap? Yeah. Um, I guess things that come to mind like um, health anxiety. So you might be yeah. constantly checking your body, thinking you've got cancer or AIDS or um, I can imagine this turning into like an OCD thing as well. If you had that where it's like you feel so mm. vulnerable to germs and such that you stop leaving your house or um and then it could be what else do they talk about finances they talk about so people yeah. are so, so concerned with um being homeless or something like that that maybe they rack up a ridiculous amount of savings and never spend anything on themselves um because mm -hmm. they're so concerned of like what will happen if they don't have enough and that keeps them anxious and this, this would affect someone's ability to be autonomous because they're so on edge and scared about what could happen. Mm. They become afraid to step out and yeah. do things by, by themselves. It's almost, um, what would the word be? Like stifling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. just 
keep someone such edge that they're, they're too scared to go and do their own thing. Yeah. Um, and where, where would this come from? Where, what would be some key childhood or early experiences that would lead to this? Yeah. An obvious one that comes to mind is if a parent had the same schema. So you can imagine it being mm. passed from generation to generation because you learn what's scary and what's safe from the way your parents respond to it. I think in the book, they yeah. give an example of like um, the child of a Holocaust survivor. And it's like they're so mm. concerned of their child's safety because of all the unsafe environment that they had that like they're so overprotective that it actually breeds this sense of anxiety to the child that the world's a really dangerous place. Mm. Mm. And it's, it seems, yeah, go. Just to bring it into what's happening now, it's like we're kind of all living in this life trap at the moment, aren't we? Because it's like we're, no, we're not leaving our houses, we're constantly washing our hands, and it's kind of like for people who have this life trap in general, I think the COVID thing can actually relieve them of anxiety because it's like, oh, actually, oh, finally my map is actually lining up with reality now. So it's like a time where this actually works, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm staring at that bit in the description that says your fears are excessive and unrealistic. Yeah, and I suddenly mean, if they're, the world, they're not anymore. Yeah, if the world changes to actually fit your map, they're no longer unrealistic. Actually, it does make sense to wash your hands a lot and to stay indoors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the next two life traps are connected to the strength of emotional connection to others. Okay, yeah. So the first one in here is emotional deprivation. Yeah. Um, and they say here, it's the belief that your need for love will never be met adequately by other people. Yeah. How does this affect us now? Good question. Well, I think the most obvious thing is that um, you end up missing out on intimacy. Um, again, it depends on which of the coping strategies you use for it. But if you kind of, if you don't believe your love, your need for love will be met, you might then avoid um, making close connections because you're afraid that the person's not going to love you back. So you might be, might be wanting love but because you're pushing that away, you would feel lonely a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that need wouldn't be getting met. Yeah. It, it seems to relate a bit to what we spoke about last week. I wonder whether people with avoidant attachment styles were emotionally deprived when they were younger. Yeah. Food for thought. Yeah. 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 Um, any other ways that might affect them? So not necessarily in relationships. Um, in within their own family or their ability to care for their own child or in the workplace is there any other ways this might affect someone or is it just anywhere where love is involved uh i guess by love i didn't also just mean romantic love like in friendships mm. just all your, all your race relationships um i think in the yeah. book they, they choose an example of someone who you know, goes to the pub a lot, has a lot of sort of surface level friends and acquaintances, Yeah, the wife, but they don't really talk about anything deep or meaningful. So it, mm. I think we've, we've come out 
with the basic safety and autonomy needs, we've kind of come out of the more fundamental needs and we're getting to more subtle things. So you mm. can have someone with this schema, this emotional deprivation schema, um, and they might feel a sense of like emptiness or loneliness, you know, over a longer period of time. But to the outside, mm. we're starting to get into the territory of these are just looking like normal functioning people now. Yeah, yeah. You see, yeah, it's interesting how it kind of develops. But by the end, I guess as we go through these, we'll kind of see how subtle some of them are as we get towards the end. Yeah, it's um, not, these needs are equal. They, they, they talk about the more fundamental needs of these, like, like the ba- basic safety and then this autonomy. And then the sort of connection to others is more, like, in theory, you could have a nice structured routine family life um, you could be also free to sort of become competent at skills. Um, but maybe you're not like, there's no intimacy in that family life. So, so that's, it's more subtle to the outside world. It's a lot more subtle to see than for example, outright abandonment or abuse or being overprotected. Mm. They're more obvious. Um, I think this emotional deprivation is, um, yeah, more subtle. Would these people, um, I guess I'm reading a couple of my notes I've got here, would, would these people tend to be a bit more materialistic? I've got a note here saying um, material or um, sexual demands act as a poor substitute for love and understanding, therefore they're never satisfied. So would these people look for love in different ways or look for connection in other ways yeah there are theories that say like when a need goes unmet you might try and like fill that hole with other needs so like find it somewhere else yeah yeah Yeah. um food isn't one that comes to mind so food's a really basic need but if you feel kind of empty and lonely you might eat more um Mm. to kind of fill that hole um or like you say buy more stuff because you get that kind of dopamine hit of buying new possessions um i wouldn't say it's like a general trait of anyone with the schema but it's definitely a form of coping you could go down yeah are they more susceptible to being a bit more hostile and irritable in their relationships or friendships that they they haven't learned how to express themselves in a loving or appropriate way possibly it depends again i think we're, mm. we're going into coping so it's like that is a yeah. way you could cope <laughs> is that because mm. you're you don't have that capacity to share intimately um mm-hmm. you could but equally rather than being hostile maybe you could just be very withdrawn um mm. when someone tries to show intimacy yeah okay and where would these <laughs> come from I'll, I'll chip in with one of the origins i've written down here yeah that was um not feeling not feeling valued by people growing up so in their friendships or yeah. by their family and that the people you chose to rely upon for your emotional needs weren't consistent yeah that's two things i've got down there is there anything else that pops into your mind for the, the causes of the emotional deprivation? Um, it's... Yeah, that basically covers it. It's, it's about your... Um, 
I think it's like your inner life not being seen by another and mm. other people not expressing their inner life. So if people in your house, you can tell that they're like, um, stuff is swept under the rug, stuff's avoided, like there's obvious um, tension in the air, but no one's discussing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like, I think this is a broad one. Like this is one I relate to a lot. And I think this is just sums up like Britain quite a lot. <laughs> like we just, we yeah. just don't, don't talk about things. It's uncomfortable. Uh, I think is the <laughs> Do general. not say what you feel or need. Yeah. 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 It's um, actually is one of those things that then like becomes, can become culturally self-fulfilling because like, um, you know, you, you might find that um, in childhood, it was it wasn't acceptable to discuss about emotional things because it made people uncomfortable. Mm. But then, if enough people around you in your culture are the same, then it, the map is still true in adulthood to some degree. Like you might talk about like your feelings down the pub, and everyone might get quite uncomfortable. And suddenly your map <laughs> so fulfilling, right? <laughs> I had this picture of us in the pub back in Montague. Yeah. Like, talking about our feelings yeah. after a football game. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous idea. Yeah. <laughs> but you see what I mean? Like, it, it's, it's one that can become, you know, people are less likely to say abandon you or abuse you in adulthood. So the map really isn't now mapping the territory um, unless you, you find mechanisms to seek those people out. Mm. But this is probably one where actually you could find a lot of people who, like, it, it's quite hard to find circumstances where you can open up about your inner life in a safe way. Um, mm. So I think it's, it, that's what can make it self-fulfilling, is that even if you attempted mm. that, other people around you might get uncomfortable and you might think, oh, fuck, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> yeah, like ne never allow yourself to be or feel vulnerable in front of other people, yeah. let, alone let alone strangers you don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, be, it seems, in some ways, I feel like this can be developed at any point in your life there. Say if you moved, you moved countries or you moved to England from another country, you, would, you, would, you could quickly realise that people aren't being as expressive and oh, yeah. are, are very emotionally repressed. I think of, I mean, I don't know which country to name, but I think of like a, a very expressive, loving country and moving to a part of England where everyone's pretty know, stoic and blunt and yeah. emotionally deprived. <laughs> yeah. Trying like, to express yourself there. You would, you would eventually like be quiet, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't talk about that. Well, it happened when I moved to Greece and like, everyone was hugging and kissing all the time. And like when people felt down, they would cry and it's fine. When people oh. angry, like they would shout at each other in the street and that's just acceptable. It's like a whole new world. <laughs> oh, just sounds, I don't know if that sounds lovely or scary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I found, um, yeah, coming, coming to Australia is definitely a, it's a bit more like that. People are a yeah. bit blunter do tend to say what they feel, but there's a bit of, there's still a bit of that stiff upper lip yeah. around, but way less so than England. I so much more pronounced when I come back to England and yeah. just, I can just see it everywhere. It's, um, there's something slightly endearing about it that I find oh, yeah. quite funny as well. Just the fact that someone could be on 
I don't know, they could be on a bus and someone's opened the window and they want it closed, but instead of asking them to close it, they would just rather sit for the next half an hour <laughs> on the bus freezing cold than say anything at all. <laughs> um, all right, so the next one is social exclusion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So social exclusion involves your connection to friends and groups. It has to do with feeling isolated from the rest of the world and feeling different. Yeah. So what ways might this affect someone later in life? Um, it might have them avoid socialising and then their needs yep. are unmet. They end up feeling a bit empty. Um, it can have them, like, I guess, if you always kind of feel like you don't fit in, you're the odd one out, um, there's kind of something wrong with you that you're not in the cool group. Um, mm -hmm that can just be distressing either like you avoid it or you kind of put up with it and feel down about it. Um, cause you, you kind of feel inferior. Um, I guess if you were to counterattack it, maybe you would kind of, uh, I'm kind of thinking on the spot here, but maybe you'd sort of put on a persona to try and like be the coolest person in the group you could possibly be to try and like mask the fact that deep down you feel like you don't fit in. Um, that's what they, um, they say that in the book that um, people with this life trap, the social exclusion life trap, are often quite skilled in social situations because they've learned how to get by in situations that make them uncomfortable. Obviously, that depends on the coping skill they're using. Yeah, yeah. But I, I guess you can kind of relate to that when you're at a, I know you're at a social event, you maybe don't want to be out, you're just not quite in the mood. You, you know what it's like when you're just using the skills just to kind of get through it you're, yeah. you're polite and you're civil but you don't want to you don't want to be there yeah it's like an effort so i think yeah so that i can imagine how that would be reinforced over time that just every social situation you went into you just learn how to get quite quite proficient at just getting through it yeah and they, they talked about that's what yeah that's what they say that especially as a therapist because obviously the people that wrote this book are therapists that they might meet these clients, but they meet them in one-to-one -one settings and it might not, their social exclusion schema just won't be triggered in that setting because it's just one-to-one. -one. So mm. it, it won't be very obvious and, and that people might seem extremely confident, fluent, good at social skills in one-to-one -one settings, but then yeah. the, the thing is only triggered, this map of social exclusion is only triggered when you're in a social group. Um, and is that experienced as a sense of um, inferiority in groups, not feeling, I guess we have said it, but just having an intense feeling that you don't belong here and you're not good enough to be around the people you're yeah, with. You don't fit in. And, and that, that would lead to a, a person with this would probably be the sort of person who would leave the party first or always be looking for a way out. The interactions might be quite short or not have a lot of depth to them. Maybe, yeah, kind of yeah. Always looking for somewhere else to be, never feeling like they quite belong in the social setting that they're in. Yeah, yeah, I could just avoid them, try and get out quickly. Um, yeah. Or, or, like we said earlier, or do the opposite and try and, like, sort of attempt to be the life and soul of the party in a... Because you feel like if I'm not seen by everyone as special and the best, then they'll see that I don't really fit in and belong here. Mm. 
And that would reinforce their sense that they're not good enough to be there. So if they, yeah. if they, if they cope in a certain way that reinforces that, like they don't express themselves at parties and they tend to be a bit, would they like self declare themselves as a bit awkward, socially awkward sometimes as well? Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm the awkward person at the party. I'm always a bit awkward, like making excuses for themselves everywhere they go. So to reinforce the fact that they aren't great in social situations. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah, okay. no, well, like, um, like you say, if you're uncomfortable yeah, because yeah. you don't fit in, then that discomfort itself is going to lead you to act in ways that then reinforce the schema. So, you, like you say, you might mm. um, you might not have smooth conversations talking to a group because you feel really uncomfortable, and then that reinforces it when you slip on your words or you know someone talks mm. over you or you mumble or something like that. Yeah. Um, so these next two are related to self-esteem. Okay. Yeah. So the first one is defectiveness. So the definition they give is that you feel inwardly flawed and defective, and the sense of being um, being unlovable. Yeah. We can think of many ways in which this would affect someone. Yeah, in their lives, if you're just feeling incompetent at work, or whether you feel unlovable in a relationship, yeah, the I guess the sorts of behaviours that that would lead to, or how that could affect friendships, yeah, in your life as well. Um, yeah, it sounds like this is a real deep-seated belief that can affect someone in quite a number of areas of their life. Yeah. It's quite similar to the social exclusion, but it feels more all-encompassing. Like, mm. I think with the social exclusion, you could feel like you don't fit into a group, but on some deeper level, you feel that you're kind of still fundamentally uh, lovable as an individual, whereas this seems mm. more like all-encompassing, like you're, you're just broken in some fundamental way. Mm. Um, and that, that would lead to you sort of expecting to be rejected in a number of areas of your life. Yeah. I can imagine some of this wouldn't, I guess, wouldn't typically, I don't know if they're related or not, but they wouldn't typically have a high self-worth or high self-esteem. There'd be a lot of lack of self-belief. Yeah, yeah. The people in, in this life trap. It's because I'm looking at the other ones and they talk about how so many of these are like interconnected and it's like if you feel that you're defective in some way then you then by definition you probably feel that you're inferior and then you might subjugate yourself which is one of the later life traps so you could become like a people pleaser like feel Mm. like you have to add more more value to relationships than other people do or you could counterattack it with unrelating standards. So you feel like you've got to make up for your defectiveness by like, um, trying yourself to everyone around you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Looking the best or getting the best grades mm-hmm. or something like that. And you, you see that in a number of areas of life, don't you know? You hear of people who typically show off or have to show everyone that their wealth or success are yeah. often referred to as people who, don't like themselves very much. Right. Yeah. 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 
And I get um, where where would this come from? How, how would this be developed? Because it seems to be something that's particularly internal. I'm wondering how that mm-hmm. is how that is put onto someone at a young age. So here it says here that as a child, you did not feel respected for who you were and your family. Instead, you were criticized for your flaws. You blamed yourself. You felt unworthy of love. So I guess if you were criticized Mm. quite a lot, um, I wonder too, if, um, you might not have to be so explicitly criticized, but like maybe you, you weren't, you only really got attention if you like went above and beyond and did things like, you know, if you, if, if you got great A grades or something, then you got that kind of love and attention. <clears throat> yeah. But if you yeah. didn't get much love and attention just for being you in general, then you, you could build this belief that, well, me for just being me is not good enough. And I have to like perform extra to be equal and to be good enough. Yeah. Yeah. It could almost be, think of those families where you get a sense that the, the parents would only be happy if they ended up in one of two professions, yeah. you know, and then they end, they end up choosing a different path, but not getting the same level of support as when they hint at wanting to be a doctor, but when they decide they want to be a musician. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So like, like I'd, I'd, yeah. If you, if your parents already have kind of a plan for you before you're even born, then you're probably going to be set up for this one, right? Because like, you're not going to meet their like expectation. Mm. Like if you're having a child, because it's like, Oh, I want to have a doctor who's going to do X, Y, and Z. Then when you're born into the world, you don't know straight away that you've got this expectation of what you're supposed to Mm. become. So inevitably you're going to fall short of it and feel like, like inherently for just being you, you're not really worthy. Um, You blame yourself when you, you yeah. blame yourself that you're you're the one who chose that path, not the one your parents had put out yeah. in front of you. There's, there's something fundamentally yeah. wrong with me because I'm supposed to be like this, but I'm not. Mm. There's a real yeah. So I think it can be, yeah, it can be explicit, like in terms of development, it can be explicit from constant criticism, maybe some name calling, um, mm. maybe like if you've got siblings that, you know, if they were for whatever reason, got more love and attention than you. And then I think it could be more subtle as well that like you're only, you're only kind of um, guessing your needs met if you perform to a certain standard. Yeah. Especially if there's another sibling or like you're the one who's not doing as well as the other siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Then of course you would, um, of course you'd feel that. I, I feel like what we've been talking about leads us quite nicely on to the failure life trap. Yep. Um, and they say failure is the belief that you're inadequate in areas of achievement, such as school, work, and sports. As a child, you're made to feel inferior in terms of achievement. Other children were always better than you. And they say this can lead to us being exaggerating the degree exaggerating our feelings of failure so even if we fail in small ways we can kick ourselves quite hard yeah if we you know if it's kind of you know not getting quite the good grade you could have got or what could happen in any area of life where you, you don't feel like you've done good enough it's yeah. it's almost kind of 
catastrophizing the situation or totalizing your result as entire failure when yeah. really you you might have done quite well and it, I, I can imagine someone with this wouldn't would typically be very kind to themselves there wouldn't be a lot of oh, no. in, encouraging self-talk that they would be getting especially i guess it, it seems most pronounced with like exam grades or job interviews or mm. sporting achievements but that's yeah, this one stood out to me quite a lot, that self-critical aspect of yeah. it and ex exaggerating failure. Yeah, because well, it's, yeah. The, in terms of the self-criticism, it's like that, those inner voices we have, we pick up from like those around us in childhood um, or, or we build them ourselves as defences. So like... Yeah, like you say, if we had an inner voice that was encouraging and supportive, then that would have come as a product of having people in our life who were encouraging and supportive when we were younger. Mm. And if we'd have had that, yeah. we wouldn't have built the schema in the first place. So yeah, yeah. we're not going to have a failure schema and an inner encouraging and supportive voice because they, they wouldn't go hand in hand. And actually that would be a potential um, way to break the cycle is to learn to build that voice for yourself. Um, Woods, very um, clear, aren't they? I think the defectiveness one is more inherently like I'm not good enough for who I am and then the failure more one is seems to be more like I'm not like competent enough at what I do or everything I do turns to shit or I'm not good yeah yeah it's not necessarily like a yeah that inward sense of not being good enough it's more like everything I touch doesn't go yeah. as well as I thought it was, or no matter how much. I, I can imagine what would be reinforced this in childhood would be if you really, like, bust your ass to get a good grade on an exam. Yeah. And everyone was telling you, like, you had to do well in this exam. Yeah. And then, yeah, you tried really hard, but then you still didn't get that good a grade. That <laughs> sense of no matter how hard yeah. I try, I will never reach the expectations of other people. I think, yeah, there's that. And then the reaction to that from those you care about most. Yeah. So if you kind of got a like, oh, well, you know, this isn't the be all and end all in life and it's just one step on your journey and like, we love you nonetheless and all that. Then, but if it's kind of a colder, you got that, then that's when yeah. you set in. Mm. And it might not even be verbal. It no. might just be, yeah, in the form of not being rewarded as you said that was really good you picked up on that it's not necessarily as overt as that it can be real subtle as in yeah. oh i only tend to get taken out for for ice cream when i do really well not regardless of how i how hard i try yeah. or even exam. just like not even rewards but even just like pleasant conversation and cuddles and like affection um yeah like I only oh, get treated. I only get treated like a respectful <laughs> human being when I do when I succeed, and like otherwise, I kind of get sort of ignored and feel like people mm. just generally a bit disappointed. And yeah, I've definitely got a few friends from backgrounds that just probably embody this because their mm -hmm. families have just pushed onto them the sense of getting high grades is everything, and they they've generally got this kind of fear struck into them. Yeah. That failure is not an option so I'd, I'd almost see that as the um that's like i don't know if it's like a counter-attack or a surrender it's kind of a bit of 
well, either you'd like rebel against your parents' expectations to get high grades and just not give a shit and just do whatever you want with your life and come off. Or you would like surrender to that and be like, fine, I'm just going to put every waking hour into getting those grades my parents want. I think that just would be a counterattack because... A counterattack? Okay. And that would come into the unrelating standards. Um, hmm. Okay, we're getting on to that, actually. That's in the next one, yeah. Yeah, I won't move on to it, but like, it's kind of like, if I, so long as I meet these really high standards, I can um, not experience that feeling of failure. It's, it's not like I feel good when I meet them, because I, I just keep moving the goalposts, but like, at least I can put off that feeling. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I thought about it like that. And then, yeah, I guess surrender. Surrender yeah. would just be to um, accept that everything's always going to go wrong for you. Mm. I guess, yeah, avoidance would probably just be never, like, procrastinating, like, never trying at something, never put, pressing the trigger, never pressing go, never, mm. like, trying hard enough at something in case you failed at it. So, like, if, if I know I've only put 50% in, well, that's okay. I'm not a failure because I know I didn't really put my all into it. Yeah. I can think of football as like that. <laughs> tennis, there's, a, there's a tennis player over here called Nick Kyrgios who does that. <laughs> yeah. sort of, he, they would rather fail with an excuse Yeah, yeah. than fail having known they tried. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. But that's what people say about him. I don't watch much tennis, but that's someone quoted that to me. So if he ever hears this, it's not personal. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, cool. So on to the next two. Um, these, I, I really like these. Well, I don't know if I like them, but I found them the most interesting. Um, so two life traps to do with self-expression. Yeah. So this is about your ability to, um, to express what you want and to get your needs met. So the first one is subjugation, which they describe as you sacrifice your own needs and desires for the sake of pleasing others or meeting their needs. Yeah, you see this a lot. Yeah. In what, where, where do you see this in? So, um, yeah, like people pleasing. Um, I guess I, when I say you see it a lot, I'm thinking particularly like I uh, see a lot of clients who have this kind of pattern where it's like what they want in life. They might not even know what they want. Like not, it's not even like you're um, putting off your wants, but you suppress them so much because you're um, just there for other people that you don't, mm. um, you don't pursue your own desires. Um, so maybe uh, it's like you're constantly, looking after a spouse and doing everything that they want. Um, maybe like in the workplace, you, you know, you're not taking lunch breaks. Um, you're staying, yeah, like, yeah. staying work at work late, even though you're not getting paid for the extra hours. Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, does, does this, uh, I know this wouldn't be the entire reason, but would people reinforce this life trap? Because when they do this, this reinforces the notion that they're they're a victim, that they're they're seen 
so they're seen to be sacrificing for other people. I, I guess I just noticed this in a lot of areas of life where yeah. people wear it almost as a badge of honour. Yeah. You know, I remember one job I worked at when I was back in England like nine years ago, some yeah. guy was telling me, like, watch these two. They're in a competition who can leave last because they want to look best to the boss. Whereas <laughs> I'm like, I'm gone at five o'clock. I'm not <laughs> um yeah is is there any i guess can you comment on with this one around does codependent relationships enter somewhere into this and also do people with this life trap how do people in this life trap reinforce reinforce it yeah it's interesting how is it reinforced so you i wonder if it's so it's related to self-expression, isn't it? So the need is to express yourself. Um, mm. So that would be to put your own wants forward and your own desires. Um, but instead they want to please others and meet their needs. I guess if it's about like... Um, so if I... I could see I could see how it could relate to other needs. I'm, I'm struggling to find it as a need in its own right. But like, if you were concerned that, um, you know, well, if I um, if I say I want to do this, or if I suggest where we go, the other person might get angry, or they might um, um, kind of withdraw emotionally, or, or literally leave. So it's kind of like so long as I'm meeting their needs, like this bad thing won't happen, whatever that is, whether it's, mm. I think getting angry seems to be quite a common one from my like clinical experience. Like people with this are concerned that, well, if I say what I want, then people are going to get angry at me. That, that's it. That's what it, um, it says in the book that this develops from people learning that when they put their needs first, yeah. other people get hurt. Yeah. And so the way yeah. it can be reinforced is each time I subjugate myself and things go okay, like no one got angry, um, my relationships are still intact, no one's hurt, then that just reinforces it because it's like nothing bad happened. Mm. So mm. long as I don't take a risk, things seem to go okay. And obviously you might now in adulthood, you might be in situations where um, people would be more receptive to your wants and desires. And actually they might even want to know what you want and would enjoy uh, and take pleasure in meeting your needs as well. Um, but your kind of map of yourself that you got from childhood won't kind of entertain that idea. Hmm. They speak in the book. Oh, sorry. You go. I just like, on top of that, it could even be the case that the very same people who helped this develop would also now treat you differently because you, you're not a child anymore. So even if um, as a child you were expected to like do X, Y, and Z, maybe now as an adult, even if you said to your like parent who subjugated you as a child, like when you were a child, it's like, oh, I want this. Oh, I like this. But maybe as an adult, when you say that, they actually would go along with it, but you won't risk it anymore. 
Hmm. Interesting. I think about the sorts of relationships that these people with this life trap would get into. There could be ones where they they can become like the carer for yeah. their their lead, the the less capable partner. Yeah. Or they could end up with someone who is um what it says someone who's quite dominating. So they they can serve that that person yeah. as well. So I can imagine if, if they entered into the, either two of those kind of relationships, yeah, where they're serving or not putting their needs first, that would you know if they're in that relationship for a number of years, I can't imagine that life trap going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, because it's like yeah. you you found someone that fits your map that feels comfortable and safe, so you enter into it. And now each interaction with that person is reinforcing the map. So it's just, unless you like, unless your need gets so depleted that you reach some sort of breaking point and end up in therapy or something, then mm. yeah, the cycle is just going to continue. Maybe have a minute. I can imagine these. Actually. Yeah. I, I can imagine these people when asked to be introspective would find that quite difficult when the spotlight's on them. I've seen it in a few situations, people who seem to be, quite um self-declared servers of other people or empaths and things like that that when the spotlight's actually on them they find it quite difficult to talk about themselves and and their needs and put themselves first there's this inherent guilt they carry i I suppose i'm just repeating myself here but I, I, i can notice it in the way that they they would really deflect any attention on them yeah because they know when attention's on them and their needs are put first, other people get, they perceive that other people get hurt. Or maybe they had an experience where other people did get hurt. So I think, um, I think I read in the book somewhere that in therapy, um, this, could, this could be one of the easier ones to overcome because of, the, because of the nature of the therapeutic relationship. Once you've got over that barrier, like once it's been made very clear that like, this is your time for you, the focus is going to be on you, like, I'm going to listen and be there for you. And I care about what you want. Like once that's reinforced enough and, and they risk accepting that might be true, then like, um, the map can change through that relationship with the therapist, possibly more easy than the others. Um, just because of the nature. And they can, yeah. And with, um, they could learn, learn ways of asserting themselves in different situations throughout their life. You can do that that skills testing with people in, in a therapeutic setting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if it was that, if it was that stifling on someone's life that they can, they, they've forgotten how to ask for things yeah. for themselves. You can practice that quite easily. Yeah. Well, yeah. You would generally call this assertiveness training. And, um, yeah. In my experience, it's less that people need, like if you take the person out of the situation and say like, oh, here, here's two other people, and this person wants and feels like they deserve a raise, let's say, and um, and here's their boss. Like, how could that person approach the boss to negotiate for a raise? And often, mm-hmm. if people take themselves out of it, they've got all the right words, and they're like, well, maybe they should say this, and they should show what value they've added to the company, and they should be clear about the figure they want and why they deserve it, what X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. So it's, I often find that it's not the 
skill that needs to be learned. It's just the fear in overcoming applying it to yourself. Is there any um, relation, I guess, in solving this? I know we're expanding a bit on this one for now, but um, is there something around if someone who's like this can detach detach themselves as in not saying it's like i need this but using their third person name like that psychological distancing all right i was um, listening to um ethan a podcast with ethan cross today and he was talking about how when it comes to thinking about what we need and getting our needs met sometimes it can be useful to introduce some psychological distancing yeah to to stop making it an emotional decision right what so they can look at it at like what's best for me use the example of when I, I know you all know the name but like lebron james was deciding where to go from one club to another yeah and he, he referred to it going um i just i wanted to make this a non-emotional decision and i wanted to decide what was best for lebron james and lebron james's future oh, right, so yeah. he, he took himself out of it so i'm just wondering as a just throwing things like a solution where the people with this could could think of it differently if they introduce some logical distancing. Or they, I think they call it linguistic distancing. There you go. Yeah. But, um, anyway, throw that. Makes a lot of sense. Thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds like sounds like it's worth a crack. <laughs> it's not something I've come across, but it's yeah. similar to just taking yourself out of the situation, isn't it? Referring referring to yourself in third yeah. person as if you were someone else. And like, if you recognize that um, other people are equal, um, then it might be easier to apply wants and needs to that individual, even if it, you know, it's you. Hmm. They did, um, they did say at the end, it was like, one thing we do say is not to say this out loud because of social, because <laughs> of like social expectations. You might look a bit mad if you're walking around just going like, Will Clark would like a coffee. Or Will Clark would like a <laughs> um, Cool. All right. Nice. We're, um, we're getting towards the, the end of the different um, life traps. Yeah. Um, just to finish off the ones around self-expression, the final one there is unrelenting standards, which yeah. I scored quite high in. Um, if you are in the unrelenting standards life trap, you strive relentlessly to meet extremely high expectations of yourself. You, you, um, put a lot of emphasis on things like status, money, achievement, beauty, order, and, or recognition of the expense of happiness, pleasure, health, and a sense of accomplishment and satisfying relationships. Yeah. Mm. So we mentioned this in the failure one to me, it, Mm. counter-attacking uh, counter failure and unrelenting standards just seem like the same thing. Like, yeah, um, yeah this unrelenting standards, it's like I have to meet this high criteria for myself. Mm. Otherwise, if I don't, I'll feel like whatever, I'm a failure or I'm worthless or not good enough or something like that. I, w I wonder whether this is more related to internal motivators or external motivators with unrelenting standards is it around achieving doing really well in things such as money 
getting a good car, being seen to be good, rather than unrelenting standards internally for yourself. I feel like that, that could be the counterattack for defectiveness. I wonder whether this is more of a, a surface-level material life trap rather than one that addresses a more internal more internal motivating factors what do you think about that i'm not sure i understood could you give another crack yeah all right um another go so unrelenting standards in what basically is this in material material things or internal um e.g your self-esteem your sense of self your sense of value rather than achieving money and beauty and a good job? It seems that... um, It depends, I think, on the person. Um, Like, you can have... Yeah, it seems like there's some sort of thing that you're trying to avoid, whether it is feeling like a failure or feeling defective or feeling socially excluded excluded or, or getting abandoned and that mm. a way to avoid feeling this is if you believe that if you achieve like this perfection at earning enough money getting the grades getting the right job getting meeting the social blueprint of buying the right house and having the perfect family or whatever it is that that I can, I can avoid the pain of, I guess what I'm saying is to me, I'm struggling. This feels more like a coping strategy than it does a schema in and of itself. Just the way I'm looking at it. I'm not sure if I'm. Yeah. I I guess something might, we can look at as well is it says something around being very judgmental of others. Right. So it's not necessarily like your own relenting standards, but you end up judging other people. So I wonder how that's developed at a younger age. This, yeah. this need to be judgmental and have really high expectations of the people around you. Is it because you're, again, something we spoke about last week, is it around if you're the one judging, you can't be judged? It's a, a safety mechanism. It's protective. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking it, also it could be like, a kind of projection where like if you're seeing it's like you know if you were performing that way you would kind of self-attack and like you're seeing a bit of yourself out in the world in, in another human and like you feel that same urge to like attack them hmm. so if we were to relate this to childhood it's something like when i've acted in that way where i've not met these standards I've been attacked in some way. Um, made, made to feel not good enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so, like, it almost breeds that same anxiety in me when I see it in other people. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Is it anything to do, is there, a, like, a jealousy aspect in there, do you think? Oh, I definitely think jealousy could come into it. Yeah, because obviously if you're trying yeah. to be the best and then someone else comes in who earns more than you or who beats you at something or, um, you know, has been to more countries than you or has got higher qualifications than you, 
that can be a threat yeah. yeah and remind you of what happened when you were younger mm. yeah we'll finish up on the final life trap yeah um so this one is around accepting realistic limits and it is called the entitlement life trap. So yeah, it's exactly what I've just said. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about people who, who have this life trap, they would be, um, they may have come accustomed to certain things in their life that they can no longer let go. And that might be, that could be material, that could be relationships, that could be how other people treat them. Is there anything else you can say on that? I haven't, haven't expanded too much, but that's uh, my so It seems to me what's screaming out at me is narcissism. They don't use the word, but like, yeah, people who mm. feel entitled, who like, um, they feel they're better than others. They feel special. They feel that other, other people's needs should be put aside for their own. Um, mm. And that like, it almost seems like other people are sort of tools for them to like, get what they want. I mean, yeah. or, or, or obstacles to getting what they want. Yeah. 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 They're either t- yeah. And th- they get, I can imagine there being like a certain level of frustration when things don't go their way that yeah. you think of someone who's entitled, they just expect everything to be as they want it. And if someone disagrees with them or things don't work out the way they want, yeah. I, I wonder how, how that's reinforced though. They're reinforced that they're, do they tend to just continually get what they want because they're quite controlling of their life and their relationships? Yeah, quite possibly. Is that how that would be reinforced? I'm imagining like someone in a hotel, like complaining about their room and like moving yeah. from room to room to get like, or complaining at the restaurant. I imagine there are lots of places where entitled people can be like catered to. Um, especially mm. if they found like a subjugating partner as well. You could kind of shape your life around being entitled if that's the map you had of yourself. I can imagine if in your life, this could develop later in life as well. Yeah. If you, I guess just an example, you you got very like rich at one point in your life or maybe you, you entered into, you started dating certain types of people who are also very rich or you get used to a certain standard of living yeah. and then people treat you a certain way. And then yeah. I can imagine let's say you like lost that money or lost that job. You would still be holding on to that level of entitlement, but the world wouldn't be treating you the way you wanted it to. Yeah. So I, I wonder how, how would you continue to play out that entitlement even when the external factors are gone? be difficult i imagine that because the this says the childhood um like the reason this evolves in childhood is because there aren't realistic limits on your on your behavior and your desires i imagine it would be quite hard um to kind of get this sense of entitlement from what they're saying, it seems like you were a spoiled as a child. And it seems like it'd be quite hard to build this if you didn't come from a rich family. Cause like if you were poor, 
then there just would be there would be certain limits that just had to be put on your desires it's like no you can't go to Disneyland we don't we literally can't do it (laughs) yeah yeah from a rich family it it almost brings its own level of difficulty in parenting because it's like you haven't got that nice excuse to put limits on the child's desires it's because if you're a multi-millionaire and your child wants something from a toy shop every time you go it's like well i could just get it (laughs) um yeah what reason reason do i have to say no like um it's it's so it seems that this would kind of come the sense of entitlement would come from growing up in a higher class richer family that did just get you everything Mm. you wanted and they, they they would see that problems problems inverted comma were solved quickly any anything that they're presented with that is an inconvenience or a want or need is catered to quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. And so I can imagine these people being very impatient. Yeah. Or you've never had to yeah. like tolerate distress of frustration from having your wants frustrated because you've always got those desires met. I can imagine. I guess I just think of uh, like in general these people sound quite intolerable or just like in general they, they don't get like a lot of sympathy from I mean I guess we're talking we're, we're presuming these people have all got money I don't think that would be the case necessarily but I wonder what groups of entitled people all being in like the same area with different needs needing to be met yeah. that can't be met I don't know just being at a restaurant and they're all they're all a different type of <laughs> they eat different foods or something and I don't know, I can't even think about it, but you know just kind of a, a funny a funny thought. But there's I guess one where I you... can imagine um mm. so if you with the defectiveness life trap, if you counterattack that, um and rather than acting like rather than surrendering and acting like you were defective, if you counterattacked it and acted like you were special and then you built some unrelenting standards on top of that to like earn loads of money, for example. Um, mm. And then you like treated the world as if you were better than everyone. That, that seems kind of in- indistinguishable from the entitlement life trap on the surface, apart from the fact that the childhood like causes of them are very different. So mm. on the one hand, you've got someone who was spoiled and got everything they wanted. On the other hand, you've got someone who was treated as if they were flawed or broken in some way, but they've counterattacked it, and now they're like um, acting as if they're better than everyone. It's interesting because mm. I'm, I'm just I'm pointing out that some of these schemers could end up looking the same, even though they've come from quite different places. Well, yeah, I guess it'd be interesting for someone if you do decide to pick up this book and have a read when when you're doing the scores and you're looking at. The different life traps there's some i put question marks by because it's yeah. almost like it's like am i acting that way because this is the core issue or life trap is this just me counter-attacking this life it's interesting to think about that you know because you no one would ever i wonder if like there's a select few people that would be entitled like as their core life trap you know yeah. I, I don't know i guess yeah maybe i didn't necessarily mean that just more well there'd be some life traps that i think would be would stand out to you more 
because you tend to behave like that in a day-to-day way, but actually it's yeah. your way of, of fighting back against another yeah. life. Track. Yeah, your way of coping. Yeah. Um, I think that leads us quite nicely on to the coping styles. Yeah. Um, so we'll go through surrender, escape, and counterattack just to kind of summarise that up. Yeah. Um, so these are all ways in which we cope with these life traps when when they're happening, not necessarily as a way of changing them. Yeah. This is how we cope within the life trap, okay? Oh, so Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the first one I've got down here is surrender. So the note I made was we distort our view to maintain the life traps. Yeah. So, yeah. So can you expand on surrender for a minute or so? Yeah, so it's kind of accepting that that's just the way it is and um, living in such a way that the life trap is just true. Um, is that what the distortion's about? We, we don't see it fully for what it is. We just kind of accept it. Yeah, obviously all it, what it really is is a... Uh, a map or a, a reconstruction of um, or a template or blueprint of reality that we're then projecting onto the world. Um, and so we have to distort reality to fit the way that, to fit our map, to fit our schema. Mm. Um, I think it's easier to understand it in contrast to the other two. So for example, escape is is another one of these coping strategies and to a if you're say escaping the um let's say the the failure one you might you might not often actually feel like a failure because you're avoiding any circumstances in which you have to try at something yeah that's what they say they say in the book you've in escape you've given up confronting your problems yeah. and therefore you've given up an emotional life right so that, that makes quite whereas, a, yeah so whereas with surrender you're you're constantly feeling that way with escape you're constantly avoiding anything that would have you feel that way um mm. is there another word you would use for escape in this would yeah. you just say um, avoidance yeah avoidance yeah and then with counter-attack that's your you've come up with a, an alternative to the issue you're you're facing you found another way of addressing that sense of failure in this example yeah so you're it's a it's a different type of avoidance it's like i'm avoiding feeling like a failure by portraying this image that i'm a success so whereas the, the, mm. the avoidance would be, I'm just not going to try anything, counterattack would be like, um, I'm going like, to put all my tension into succeeding to avoid feeling like a failure. But it's mm. still the belief that you're a failure that's fueling it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So deep inside, you feel like a failure, but to the outside world, you might actually look like a big success. What are the, um, the, is it in Marino's work? I sent, remember I sent you that roles document. There's the three, the three coping system, the four coping systems we have, isn't it? We, 
we move towards, we move away, and we move against. Okay. Is that sort of, is there any parallels drawn between, between I'm thinking with um, counterattack, that's us moving against the issues we've, we're facing in our lives yeah. or the life map. Um, moving, what was it, move against, move towards, um, moving to moving towards would probably relate to more of the positive strategies that they come up with in this. Like actually facing, yeah. Actually facing, yeah. So these coping styles maybe don't actually relate a whole lot to those, but definitely the moving, moving against, like you've, you've made a choice to actively do something about the way you're feeling. Yeah. In order to simply not feel that way because it's too painful. Yeah. Um, Mm. so there another i don't know about moreno stuff but like what stands out for me is like the fight flight or freeze response it's like i can yeah. either fight this thing by counterattacking it i can either um flee from it by avoiding it or i can like just play dead and kind of get into that depressive state of well this is just the way it is i'm just shit and like surrender to it mm. yeah okay should we um move on to what we can do to address them. Oh uh, yeah. Address live chats once they've been identified. So there's two um well, they talk about in a section towards the end of the book that there's seven assumptions to do with the philosophy of change. Right. Like how do things change? And yeah. there's two that stood stood out to me amongst the seven. Yeah. One of them was empathic confrontation. Yeah. And the other one was creating a personal vision, which I which yeah. stood out to me, especially feels quite linked to that sense of personal responsibility as well. Yeah. Um, is there anything in there that stood out or did you want to elaborate on those two? Yeah, no, well, they, so they both stood out for me as well. Um, so like, right at the start of the book before they even talk about all these chapters on life traps, they, they go through like seven ways to change them. And they then, do, don't they? and then at the yeah. end of the book, which is what you're referring to now is like the last chapter goes into this philosophy stuff. And okay. Should we and save those two for the end then? Or, well, I was just going to say that they, it, it was kind of struck me because the, the points you just made about the empathic confrontation and the um, creating a vision, they seem quite big deals. <laughs> and yet they're, they're like these short paragraphs in the final chapter that you could easily kind of brush over. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, when I think about like empathic confrontation, that sounds really, that sounds quite challenging. And especially if you were like suffering from one of these life traps, it might even be even more key. difficult. To like, if you're going to be, um, so when you talked about Moreno's thing, it's like, yeah, we've got, we can find ways to cope or we can actually confront and l deeply look at our uh, schemas, which is what this book's essentially asking us to do. Mm. Um, it sounds quite important that we do that with a, in a kind, compassionate, empathic way. And it's just interesting mm. that they just kind of left that to a very short paragraph right at the end of the book. 
Yeah. Like, oh, someone could have gone through the whole thing by that point. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I think it, it'd be good if we, um, yeah, maybe we can talk about the two that stood out to us and then go to the the eight ways they changed. So I think if you've done those first, yeah, that might set up, that could set up the uh, the battleground in which to tackle the other eight ways. So I guess when I think about empathic confrontation, that means yeah. being able to look at look at all the incidents, relationships, and struggles you've had in your life, but yeah. from a bit more of a whether you need to be detached from it or whether you just need to be less critical of yourself when you're doing it. It involves uh, a way of unpacking what's happened previously in your life without putting blame on yourself, but neither at the same time shying away from any responsibility for things that you may have done in your life as well. Yeah. So you're not avoiding it. You're um, confronting it head on, but if you get the whole f- theory of this, you're recognizing that you were once a child whose needs in these circumstances weren't getting met. And like, yeah. as you look back of the pain of that, you're doing it in the same way that you would be comforting a child right now who was in front of you feeling that way. Like you wouldn't treat them with mm. criticism or like try to avoid them. Like you'd feel compassion for them and want to comfort them. I think they're asking you to treat yourself in that same way. And again, back to um, Ethan Cross's philosophy of psychological distancing, like distancing ourselves from the the pain we may have felt back then, or the emotions that come with it as well. It's like you you didn't know better back then. You talking to I guess that's the the notion of empathy is to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and feel feel what they're feeling, and you know. Yeah. Un- understand yeah so if, if we're able to do that it should breed a level of kindness to ourselves yeah. in our inquisition of what we're trying to find out yeah because we can be it's, so um, um like self-critical and frustrated at ourselves when we catch ourselves repeating another pattern it's like oh, i subjugated myself again oh, I, I knew i should have been more assertive then and i knew it at the time but i just let that feeling overpower me or whatever it's especially looking at failure for example as well you know or social exclusion if you're going back every time you're awkward at a party and things like it might not be helpful to kind of continually replay events trying to understand that this is just a pattern that's been reinforced throughout my life but it's not something i knew about until until now yeah potentially and it's like learning to be um kinder to yourself and and because you're recognizing that it's you know you're just a human being and this stuff came from an unmet need when you were young and Hmm. dependent that that's starting that yeah putting that at the forefront yeah Yeah. rather than just thinking like oh you know for sake i'm an adult now i shouldn't have to act like this anymore it might be true but it's not helpful What about um, moving on to creating a personal vision for change? Yeah. Around, um, it makes me think about um, one of the steps of uh, 12-step recovery around believing that change is possible. I think it's step two. 
like you're kind of admitting you've got a problem step one believing that you can change step two yeah i think that that's where the hope lies isn't it like you going into this i believe there would have to be some sort of vision or willingness for this situation to be different yeah. I think if, if you if you weren't willing to change what's come up for you then it might not be a very fruitful exercise and i guess in the process of creating yeah. a personal vision you're you're putting out there new ways of being that you want to aim towards you're giving yourself some direction moving away from what was previously an unproductive and destructive behavior patterns yeah. you're believing that there is another way of doing things and there's a direction you want to head in yeah so um obviously they, these are therapists writing a self-help book so they're kind <clears throat> of assuming that someone who's coming to therapy or that's buying this book will have some desire for things to be different for themselves and i guess yeah. they're saying that wanting like the bad to be gone isn't quite enough you also it would be very helpful for you to picture the good you actually want from life. That, um, and I, as I was reading this, I was kind of weighing up between an actual, like thinking about the actual future. It's like, oh, in five years' time, I would like to be in this place versus like more n- non-temporal, like, values or principles i want to live by like here's the north star i want to follow in terms of like Hmm. i want to be you know compassionate but assertive i want to meet my own needs but be kind to others things like this like values that Hmm. um these life chats might get in the way of rather than uh i guess i was thinking that by setting an actual future vision of i want this job i want to like marry this type of person i want to earn x amount of money I could imagine how that could get sucked into maybe unrelated standards or yeah, yeah, failure. True. And um, so, so I was guess what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. Guess what you're referring to here is like in regards to a personal vision. You're thinking yeah. of what, what values you you want to live by and what's what's important to you moving forward, rather than something projected to two years ahead or something like that. Something. Yeah having an understanding that these life traps get in the way of me acting congruently with my values. Yeah. But firstly, what, what are the values I actually want to work towards? Like start with that. That's, um, Susan David talked a bit about that in emotional agility around walking your why as well. Like allowing that walking your why. So why your why W H Y. Um, And how that often when it comes to the small daily changes we need to make yeah. often can, can guide that. Having your values quite strongly set in stone helps you because each day, as she says, you're presented with hundreds and thousands of choice points throughout the day. Yeah. And if you had uh, an empathic gentle awareness of what your life traps are and how you tend to act yeah you have that in the bank i in these situations i tend to act like this yeah but my values are that i want to act like this yeah so at that choice point i can go 
either way. Yeah. When I feel like, so if we can give an example, so when I feel like a failure, I tend to engage in negative self-talk. Yeah. I don't try as hard because I know I'm not going to succeed anyway, but I may through all of this have a value of hard work, um, working hard in areas that I enjoy. So it might be the particular work you're doing or, something like that or i like to try my best no matter what happens those could be your values yeah i guess with these two um these two ways of addressing it so empathic mm. computation and creating personal vision you've created yourself with a way, two ways of going yeah, i yeah. can try and go towards my my personal vision of values yeah. or i can just continue to repeat the old the old pattern yeah and you're making it clearer. So when you're at that choice point, it, it's almost an easier decision. Like if, um, if you don't really know, like you kind of know that this path causes a sense of suffering and a repetition. I don't want to go down again, but you're not clear yeah. on, but you know, there are millions of alternatives, but, and if, so if you're not clear on the alternative, you want to go down it's so much easier to take that path of least resistance and procrastinate. Fall back in. Yeah. 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 Really interesting. I think that's a really important thing to think on. I know that's something that interests me in particular is around that, you know, choice points. What do we do in those times when we can go either way, we fall back into an old behavior or we start something new. Yeah. I guess it's quite, you, you need that knowledge. What's happened before? What way do I want to go? Yeah. And it's less cognitive stress. Like if you're already being pulled in a destructive direction, Mm. then have to consider in that moment, well, what would be a better thing for me to do? Like if you've already done that thinking beforehand and then you can say, well, this, this happens a lot. I repeat this all the time. Next time I'm at this choice point, I know it's going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next day I've decided that I will, I want to do this specific action then like it's so much easier to then do that when it, when the time comes. Hmm. Um, so I'm looking at the, there's eight ways in which life traps change and there's eight obstacles to change. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll read out the titles of all of them just to like set. Go for it. Yeah. So you've got Shoot. number one, label and identify your life traps. So out of all of them, what to do. Uh, number two, understand the childhood origins of your life trap. Feel the wounded child inside you. Number three, yeah. uh, build a case against your life trap. So disprove it at a rational level. Um, number four, write letters to the peers, parents, siblings who helped cause your life trap. Number five, examine your life trap in careful detail. Number six, pattern breaking. Number seven, keep trying. And number eight, forgiving your parents. I do feel in some ways we, we've touched on quite a few of these. Yeah. Um, especially, how, um, especially around examining it in detail, looking at the ways it affects your life day to day. And what was the other one? The next set, pattern breaking, we spoke about that as well. Yeah. Um, something they do get you to do in here um, in the book is to write flashcards yeah. at, the end of, at the end of each chapter. So it's kind of like a daily reminder. And it's basically 
asking you to, from memory, look at in what situations does this live track get activated? What do I need to remind myself when they come up? So I think we have spoken about that, but this is more a, a practical thing you can carry around with you. Yeah, so it's um, like if you've got, you know, yeah. stuck in your it comes back to what you're saying about choice points. Like if you've got in your wallet a card that says like, I get into this pattern a lot. I'm probably feeling this way now. Uh, I'm feeling this way because this has been triggered and this has yeah. been triggered because this happened to me in childhood and here's why it's probably not true. Like if you, if you know that like, oh, each time I reach a choice point, I'm going to pull out that card and like remind myself that could be one of those things yeah. that you've got prepared. Um, yeah. I thought that was quite an interesting exercise to do. It's, I guess it's hard to go two into if you don't kind of do it yourself i suppose but these I, it was good to read out the the seven ways i think we, we've probably covered them i'd say yeah so it's like um, acknowledge that you've got this pattern recognize that it comes from unmet needs in childhood and then experience almost find a space in which you allow yourself to experience the pain of that need going unmet I think in the book mm. they suggest like writing a letter. Um, I think writing can good, be a good way to express that, or maybe going to a therapist if like it's too painful for you. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, they did. Yeah, they wrote that as well. And get the help of others too. Yeah, um, and I think this that would then help you to build a case against your life trap at a rational level because. Because yeah. you understand where it's come from, it's not just this alien thing, then um, it's like, okay, well, I built this map of the world and myself when I was a kid. I'm now in a different situation because I'm an adult and um, I'm in a different environment now, but I've still got these old maps that I project onto the present. Um, mm. And I think your friends could help you find that out. Oh, definitely. Do I always act like this? Do I? Like we spoke a bit about this last week as well, you know, having mirrors of truth in your life and yeah. things who can tell you when you're at your best and when you you may be falling short or whatever um cool so i think i'll, I'll read out the the obstacles there's one of them that i really love that yeah. i'd like to speak about but uh so um so obstacles to change um obstacle one you are counter-attacking instead of acknowledging and taking responsibility for your life trap yeah Obstacle two, you escape from experiencing your life trap. So a lot of these are covering those coping mechanisms. Yeah, um, yeah. Obstacle three, you have not disproved the life trap to yourself. You still accept it on a rational level. Yeah. That makes me think about CBT. Um, obstacle four, you started with a life trap or task that was too difficult. So basically just not going in too hard too early right. on one of the the more full-on ones. Um, obstacle five, you realise your life trap is wrong on a rational level, but emotionally you still feel it's valid. Right. You have not been systematic and disciplined about changing. Right. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah, that's my favourite. <laughs> um, your, plan, your, your plan is missing an important element and your problem is too entrenched or deep-rooted to correct it on your own, which, can't, which makes sense. There's some things that yeah. maybe a self-help book can help with. Um, could we um, finish off by talking about obstacle five? Yeah. So you realise your life trap is wrong on a rational level, but emotionally you still feel it. Can you speak to that? 
Well, this is a really like this isn't something you can expect to change quickly anyway. Like sometimes you can see a um, you can see the irrationality of your position in a split second, and like so that that part can happen quickly. But your emotions are built from lots and lots of experiences, and so they need to be changed by experience. Like they can't just be changed on making a decision they 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 change on having new experiences which um corrective experiences yeah that they they challenge your map but they don't challenge them rationally they challenge them experientially and emotionally and Mm. so i think one of the parts of this is actually confronting the difficult emotions from childhood memories of when these needs are unmet um i think that can help you emotionally because that's a new experience and having someone potentially witness that um so whether that's a therapist or a friend or some some someone who who can see your pain and validate it Hmm. and then so so this is making me thinking a lot about compassion focused therapy where wherein you would learn to build a part of yourself that treated yourself in a wise compassionate way and i think often in cbt you can end up still criticizing yourself but just doing it more rationally so it's like well like you feel like um your wife's going to abandon you and she doesn't love you. That's so stupid. She obviously loves you. She's there for you all the time. She, there's no evidence that she's ever going to abandon you, you idiot. Yeah. Like you, you could talk to yourself that way and be completely rational, but still be harsh. And yeah. our inner child <laughs> doesn't respond to frustration and criticism and harshness, um, even if it's sound logically. Like mm. we, we respond in terms of opening up and being vulnerable, we respond to someone being encouraging and kind and having a sense of calm authority. And so it's about, yeah. and if we can't find that in ourselves, it's about finding someone who can be that for us to then confront mm. those painful emotions from childhood. I think that would mm. help with the um, emotionally feeling um, having your emotionally feeling this new scheme you're trying to build of a more positive schema. And that, that might take time. Yeah. 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 You take time to get that, um, have that emotional reaction and that corrective experience built up over time. So what they say in the book, they said in insight comes quickly, but change comes slowly. Right. So I suppose right. within that, just being, being very patient with yeah. the change process and you may have to, test this out in a variety of situations i think right at the beginning they talk about continually confronting so it's like yeah 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 what i said just then is quite um deep experiences you you're not going to do it every day are you you're not going to have someone witness you cry about your childhood every day but you can continually like have small experiences confronting your life traps every day. Um, mm. So maybe asking if, if it's your, you know, assertiveness or something, your self-expression, it's 
um, asking for things you want more often, getting to a habit of, oh, I know I have this preference. I have a tendency to suppress it, but I'm going to ask this time. You build, up the case, you build up a case against it that you can emotionally identify with because you've had that experience and you felt, you felt what it felt like to change rather than you've logically understood what it is going to take. Yeah, to you, you build a whole, like, you, you think of a whole load of new habits you can, like, implement to consistently challenge the thing. So you, you're building this backlog of new experiences. And I wonder how that relates to the the step of being systematic and disciplined about changing. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder whether it sounds really harsh, and I guess I just the the ordered or the orderedness in me responds yeah. quite well for that. I'm just tend to be a relatively well disciplined person when it comes to doing something I want to do. So I guess yeah. when it comes to change, maybe slightly different. But I wonder whether what they mean by that is whether you can hold yourself a bit more accountable to confronting different scenarios which are opportunities to change are you creating enough opportunities in your life where you can actively confront your life trap and give yourself an opportunity to have that corrective experience because typically with some i guess particularly with subjugation or maybe another couple of the the life traps social exclusion as well yeah as an example you may shy away from opportunities yeah. to change and in some ways that might require just on a practical level actually planning a bit and yeah. looking at your diary in the week and go right when when this week am i actually going to be doing something social that requires me to challenge my already existing schema yeah yeah um, or, so there's, there's or when, to, um, like yeah wait for times where your scheme is triggered to act in a new way but like that's that's just waiting on fate whereas, whereas you're saying well why not plan things you know will definitely trigger you on purpose and confront them <laughs> yeah like when when am i likely to fail this week yeah you know when when is a time that i i would like to speak up for my needs more mm. this and whether that requires rehearsing it or whether that requires just simply noting it and being like, okay, it's coming. And even that can mean just knowing, going into that situation, just going there to observe your reaction. Yeah. You're not necessarily trying to make a change in the first place. Maybe that's a good first step for people, not necessarily trying to change things straight off the bat, but actually like being disciplined and systematic i like the way they use the word systematic but this mm. makes me think of diary um <laughs> going okay like three times this week i'm gonna pay careful attention to how i react when i'm talking to someone more senior than me at work mm. and see does that how does that make me feel you know it could make someone feel inferior or scared of failure or they could subjugate in those yeah those times I know. Yeah, I, I find that interesting. Yeah, because I think yeah, on a practical level, it does require some some discipline, or just at least having a knowledge when they're going to pop up again. Yeah, not just hoping that sometimes will happen where you can face it, but like actually mm. making plans 
that are going to be challenging. And you can also objectively look at how you do react. Because yeah. you might have an idea in your head about like, oh, I always seem to f*** up in social situations or I always say the wrong thing in a work meeting. But when you actually look at it, you know, obviously I know this is tapping into the more um, logical side of the argument, but it can't do any harm to go, okay, actually I went to four meetings this week yeah. and at no point did I sound stupid or say the wrong thing yeah. or make a fool of myself. You know, it's, it, that, that can help build the case as well as giving yourself chances to challenge. Yeah, you can actively ask yeah. for feedback. Like, go to your yeah. manager and be like, oh, we've had four meetings this week. I attended all of them. How do you feel like I contributed to them? Because like, <laughs> in, in my head, I think every time I talk, I sound like a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, you don't. So, yeah. For me, like, the self-expression one uh, felt like most apparent. And as I was reading back through the book again, I was reminded how much we used to like, um, like play music and go to open mic nights as teenagers and that. Mm. And I was thinking, actually, that would be one that, like you said, it could be something I could just put in the diary of like, each week I'm going to express myself because I'm going to go to this open mic night, I'm, I'm going to perform a song I've written and like, so I know that like systematically I am expressing myself to other humans in some yeah. way that's going to consistently challenge my schema. Because hmm. so, some of these might not come up very regularly either, you know, especially if one of them is like related to relationships or something. Yeah. You know, if you, just in general, if your life, you're the sort of person who's had like, has a partner once every three years for a short amount of time or, something like that or there's you know you, you take an exam once a year or something like these things might not come up very often so it's really looking like which one affects you most on a day-to-day -day level yeah. and how can i challenge how can i regularly challenge that i think that's um, that's part of that step of like looking examining your life trap in careful detail because there might be things that strike you as quite obvious at <laughs> first like taking exams but then you like the more you dig into it, the more you realize, actually, I procrastinate quite a lot on a daily basis and I get away with it. <laughs> I, always, I always get the thing done, but really I'm like consistently avoiding bits of failure. And actually, although it doesn't in, in any given day, it doesn't affect me too much. I would do very well mm. to like overcome this procrastination, for example. Hmm. Interesting. I think we've covered a lot there, mate. I think it was quite good. I think, uh, yeah, definitely looked at all 11 life traps. Yeah. Where they come from, ways they can be changed, obstacles to change. Yeah. Have you got any, um, any final thoughts at all? Yeah. Um, so I, I wrote a few things down that were like, so that... It's a self-help book for the general public, but it's also saying uh, this is a subset of therapy that, sorry, this is a therapy for a subset of people with like characterological or personality disorders who weren't helped as much by CBT. And Jeffrey Young is saying like, that's why I developed it. Um, so I found there was a bit of a mismatch between saying like, well, th this really is for 
people who really struggle with normal therapies, but I'm writing a book for the general public as if everyone can relate to it. Um, yeah, that's, that's a weird one, actually. <laughs> and, and I think everyone can relate to it. They're like, and when I went through like the questionnaire, it was like there were four, there were two questions for each life trap. And then you answered them, you answered each question twice, one for your child self and one for your adult self. And out of the four answers you gave for each life trap, it was like between one and six, one being like, this doesn't sound like me at all. And six being this fits me perfectly. And if mm. any one of those four answers was a four or above, it said you like had this life trap. So like at the mm. end of the questionnaire, <laughs> I'm coming out with like six of the life traps and it's like, I've only, I've only just read a chapter where it said, like, this is a therapy for people with, like, deep characterological and personality disorders. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, I've got this mistrust and abuse and emotional deprivation, failure, subjugation, uh, entitlement. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's like, oh. bloody hell, I've got a lot of work to do. And I, I think... Um, because of how easily you can like answer a four on with a questionnaire and just be told you've got this life chat. I think it, it's a little bit dangerous mm. and it's a little bit too easy to be like, I've got all this wrong with me when like, mm. um, when you've just told people that this was developed for a subset of people who have like personality and yeah. disorders. Okay. I don't know what you think. I think, yeah, I, I guess in general with these sorts of books, especially ones with a name like this one, yeah. like, <laughs> I, I, tend to, I tend to, I don't, it's weird, I don't work them kind of back to front, cover to cover. I sort of read it, take what I want from it, um, or, you know, take what challenges me and have a think about it. I, I do think it's it's worth reading, you know, to anyone listening, it's worth a read. Um just because certain things do stand out to you and you can apply them to your life. And I, I totally get what you're saying around, you know, it's been applied to the general reader, but then you can identify with so many of them. Yeah. But as I was going through, I was sort of highlighting the ones that I scored particularly high on and then just reading the other ones for enjoyment and then getting bits and bobs yeah. out of it. But I think it's worth, it's worth the read. And it's, it's, a good, it's a good way of thinking just in a systematic way. Like, yeah why why may i be behaving the way i am now what destructive patterns of behavior am i doing day to day that aren't serving me and where, where do they come from and how can i change them oh yeah it's i i like the way it's a relatively short book but it's quite specific in its examples yeah um sometimes i worry even sometimes when we talk about it like now whether we it becomes too vague, but yeah. in giving, trying to give concrete examples, like how were your friendships when you were younger? Where were your parents? Like what, what's going on? Like, did you, did you fail at sport a lot? And now you feel about playing sport? Like it encourages you to think of specific examples. Yeah. And yeah, then once I, they're up I, in the air. Yeah. I, I agree. I think it's uh, I, I think it's an awesome system. It's a great way of like, looking at your mental health and it's it covers in more breadth and depth than cbt which is where it evolved from um and yeah. it makes more sense because so often people can come out of cbt thinking like 
feeling like, well, okay, I, I get that I'm thinking in distorted and irrational ways, but that makes no like why why am I like that? <laughs> Whereas this is a lot yeah, like yeah. explains the whole, way, yeah. yeah, explains the whole thing in a much um clearer mm. way. Um so and the final chapters are quite nice. They they get into, you know, the philosophy of change and how we yeah. change and I think that's a nice way of wrapping it up and towards the end, you know, think about empathic confrontation and creating a vision and those sorts of things without sounding too too cringy and pop yeah. psychology sort of yeah. gives a good idea. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, mate. Enjoyed that. that yeah, was, um, good stuff. That was good. We'll, uh, what are we doing next week or the week after? Uh, We're doing... Um, the Road Less Travelled by Scott Peck. <laughs> Got Peck. Do I need to go grab the book and show it to the camera? Yeah, or, if you got yes. it there, go, go for it. Ah, <laughs> I, did I did suggest it, so that's fine. <laughs> Imagine I couldn't find it for like five minutes. I got his name so right. Uh, yeah. M, M. Scott Peck. That's What's right. the M for? Mr. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cool. Yeah, so it's around um, facing difficulties and suffering through changes can enable us to reach a high level of self-understanding. I'll, uh, worth giving a read, or if you can get on, um, you know, you can pop online and maybe get a quick summary if you don't have the time to read it all, but it's really good. It's got some great chapters on, um, dis- on discipline, love, growth, and grace. So I go. really liked this one. There's plenty of... Um, pages folded because i wanted to remember them but now there's too many so i have to try and find out which bits of it to talk about but um yeah yeah i'm really looking forward to chatting yeah. about actually that. thinking about that book um it's a lot more personally written isn't it i'd, I'd say that's my la- i i agree that i i love this book i think it's well worth buying but like it's you feel sort of quite distanced from the re- from the authors compared to something yeah. like that which is like he's put his heart and soul into that and mm. I think it comes across which we will discover in a fortnight's time love so, it I love it I'll uh, look nice to you then right